Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin this program with Jack Ablin of Crescent Wealth Advisors, the Chief Investment Officer. Jack, I'll start with a simple one for you. What do you want to hear from the chairman in two hours' time? Yeah, I want to hear, um, obviously, that he recognizes the issues, but that he is, continues to pledge to not push rates into negative territory. Well, I, Jack, I that, Jack that was too short an answer for radio. Yeah. Jack, that was too short an answer for radio. I mean, we've got to have longer <laughs> answers yeah. so we can pause here. Jack, I mean, the, the, the chairman is, has a huge, huge... Uh, mandate today, and part of that mandate is his new stardom. John brought this up the other day. I mean, basically, he's the most popular guy in Washington. How does he play that card today? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, he has certainly been very responsive to market forces after his, uh, you know, fourth quarter 2018 gaffe. Uh, but, um, I think that he does need to be that last line of defense against negative rates. And I think the, the fact is that U.S. rates have been consistently higher than the rest of the world. And I don't see a reason uh, for negative rates uh, in the U.S. I think, you know, risk taking is actually, um, you know, at least right now, uh, pretty well at hand. So why is the market pricing in negative rates? Uh, I think we're, they're looking around the world, and there's, they see 17 trillion or so of uh, negative rates worldwide. And the, you know, I think they'll look at perhaps this is that that tidal wave, or or, or at least tide uh, that could push uh, U.S. rates negative. But um, you know, it's a. I think it's a very very awkward situation for a regulatory body that is is designed to prevent runs on banks and if cash under the mattress yields more than money in the bank that's a you know that's a dangerous place to be jack do you think that the fed would rather buy stocks than take uh, take rates negative you know what? Um, you know, they're, who knows? They're they're getting pretty friendly with BlackRock these days. Uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe someone over there has introduced them to the uh, you know the the spider. I don't you know. know I'm not, but, I'm not uh, privy to these conversations, Jack. But I, I don't know if Larry Fink is on the call to uh, to Mr. Powell saying I think it's time to buy the spider yeah. ETF. Look, let's get let's get serious about what's happening here. At some point in the next few years, maybe in the next few months someone at the Federal Reserve wakes up and realises, even with interest rates at zero, the monetary policy is too tight because where inflation is. And I think the risk is here, and I don't expect it to come from the core of the FOMC. It is likely at some point a peripheral member of the Federal Reserve is going to wake up one day, see where inflation is, feel like zero is too tight, and start to come around to the idea they should be doing something else. I don't think they should be doing it, Tom. I'm just saying that I don't think we should totally dismiss the conversation because I think at some point in the next few months, inflation drops aggressively. You will hear that voice. It will come. 
You sound like a, a, a Brit with a with a legacy of the thir- the fifties, the forties, and the thirties, even back to Clement Attlee, where this was germane about wage reduction, folks, which is the heart of the matter. We're fortunate to have Jack Ablin with us, who can do the math. Jack Irving Fisher, a million years ago, it's all linked together. What's it mean for the discount rate of the financial system of the Pharaoh scenario we just? And what does that mean for equities? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think obviously the biggest uh, uh, uncertainty surrounding equities is, you know, how long is this this economic coma going to last? And what does that really mean for future cash flows? And if you believe, as I do, that stock prices are simply the discounted uh, present value of future cash flows, I took comfort in saying, okay, let's assume we eliminate 2020 cash flows, uh, eliminate 2021 cash flows, and then resume uh, in 2022. Um, Even from a discounted cash flow basis, you're looking at around 11% decline. So, you know, we have to keep in mind that equity investing is a long-term uh, endeavor, and that the present value, the stock price, you know, reflects a long stream of cash flows, not just 2020, 2021. We often have conversations on programs like these, Jack, about what the market is telling us, the market in inverted commas. When you look beneath the market, yes, we do see a handful of tech firms doing fantastically well. If you pull up a chart of JP Morgan, that stock has just bounced along the bottom. We're still down 40% or so off the highs in 2020. What are the financials screaming at the moment to you? I think what it, it, the bigger picture, Jonathan, is that the stock market is now, and equity investors now are behaving like the bond market and like a bond investors. And you know, the fact is that this challenge is really in many for many companies, maybe not a J.P. Morgan, but for many companies, uh, a binary outcome. Um, you know, the best you can hope for in a bond portfolio is you get your money back. Um, that's how ec- a lot of equity investors are looking at their equity portfolios these days. And so if you look at, for example, you know, the share of below investment grade in the index, I mean, it's perfectly aligned. Um, the S&P 100 has about 3% below investment grade. The S&P 500 has about 5% below investment grade. And then mid caps and small caps are, you know, upwards to 25%. Um, so I think that's what I think that's what you're seeing in J.P. Morgan. A lot of those customers, you know, carry below investment grade ratings. So, Jack, are you saying that the markets seem fairly valued right now when you peel back the surface and you see who the winners have been and who the losers have been? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty adequately aligned. Uh, one of the things that we advised our clients early on was, uh, which is, was hard for me to do, was get out of passive index funds and get into actively managed. And then we provided them with a what we call a belt and suspenders portfolio of, you know, essentially double um, A AA or better companies that have a business model that will sustain this coronavirus gulch. But... Um, it's yeah, I think that's you know now you could probably get back into index funds because everything seems to be aligned. Jack, fantastic to catch up with you this morning. Always great to get your thoughts. Jack Apple in there, across it wealth. 
Stanley Druckenmiller making some headlines in the last 24 hours. He had this to say about the V-shaped recovery hopes. I just think that the V-out is a fantasy. A fantasy, Tom King. A fantasy that I think a lot of people would hope for. We all want the recovery. Just many people don't think it's going to happen in that form. I I jumped on this, John, the other day, and I got some love notes. That's called hate mail, folks, on on this. And and it's a perfect guest to talk to right now, John, about this. I'm glad you bring it up. Christian Keller with us with uh, Barclays head of their economic coverage. And Christian, you know, I was going to go like eight ways towards Chairman Powell, but John's absolutely correct to revisit the fantasy led by the Bank of England. Up a down 14%, up 15% in short order. Do you have any confidence those kind of fantasies could occur? Well, you know, let's first, in a way, uh, maybe look a little bit back why they would even entertain such what you call a fantasy. I mean, fact is simply the following. Um, all the research shows from past uh, recessions and recoveries that if you have a recession where, A, you have a lot of policy response, and, B, a recession that's not driven by a banking crisis, you should actually recover relatively robustly. Now, I guess markets and the Bank of England, for that matter, looked at this and said, look, we have an unprecedented policy response, a massive and very quick policy response, and we have actually a banking system that you know went into this with high capital buffers. And so once the health issue is gone, you would expect you reopen the economy and things go very quickly back up. Now, therefore, I don't think initially this was necessarily fantasy. I think what it's dawning now on us is that, you know, the health issue, unfortunately, this virus is still, um, you know, not that well understood. And we are now looking into all the opening of economies being fairly gradual with the risk of actually having to shut down parts again if we have a second wave, etc. I think this is the issue. I think otherwise, you know, it was not wrong to think that this had all the ingredients for a V-shaped recovery in principle. Christian, I'm struck by your comment about an unprecedented policy response, and that has been a common line, and yet a growing number of investors and economists are saying that the response has barely broached the amount of demand destruction in the economy. In other words, it has barely filled the gap uh, that we've opened up. Does this really even count as stimulus, as a response, when it's just sort of filling a, a, a sort of endless hole at this point? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, both, both comments are true. You know, it is true that this is uh, the largest, uh, at least in, you know, in our recent history, the largest uh, response. But it's also true, unfortunately, that uh, the decline in activity is by far the largest we've seen in, in modern times. So, um, look, I, I, I do agree. Uh, there is a, a risk that uh, regardless of the, the, you know, the magnitude of the policy response, it may not be enough. And I think... Um, if we now look at, you know, this morning we were surprised on the upside a bit by some of the March data and the Q1 data. Uh, you know, things are not being as bad as people expected. But the second quarter, you know, we will see massive declines. And as I said, if this is not completely lifted in Q3 and if this extends, I think we actually do get into the situation whereby the policy response may simply not be enough. And it's also a policy response that cannot be sustained forever. Uh, if you do this for one, two quarters because you're in this, in the, you know, the bottom of a V, you can do it. If you need to extend this for several quarters, you know, the negative impact of, you know, potentially looking at the sustainability of debt and all the, you know, the, the, the liabilities you accumulate, I think that will have an impact then on, on sentiment as well. 
Well, Christian, I don't want to make this the doom and gloom report, but Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed, I think, alluded to what you're discussing right now. And he said the longer you keep this economy locked down, we run the real risk of a depression scale recession. Are they the kind of things you're thinking about, Christian, if we have to think, keep things locked down for much longer? Look, I, I think, uh, you know, this is, as I said, I, this is not yet my scenario. I, I do hope in a way that uh, we, we open, we open gradually, but we do get back on, on, you know, on, on to a relatively normally functioning economy. But I think the risk is exactly what you stated, <clears throat> that this is prolonged. Uh, you know, you keep unemployment high. Uh, that means, you know, people don't go to work. They don't have income. And after a while, equity markets will realize, you know, yes, we get a lot of liquidity boost, but if earnings are not supported by demand, you know, we yeah. may have to revise down. And you get into this kind of a doom loop, but then, yeah, ultimately, of course, depression well, could be the, the outcome. Christian, very quickly here, when Chairman Powell speaks in an hour and 10 minutes, is he speaking understanding he will see a 20% unemployment America? I do think that that has... Uh, become uh, uh, quite clear to everyone by now. You know, we're following the data on a weekly basis. Obviously, uh, we, we see that, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the situation has peaked. So we're now seeing less uh, new unemployment, but nevertheless, we're moving towards 20%. I think this has, has, uh, has been widely forecasted now. And I think this is why, you know, this is why the Fed has been as aggressive as it has been. And this is why they say, you know, don't worry about the fiscal uh, a situation of fiscal sustainability and about issuing debt at the moment, you know, because they do see uh, what is happening on the labour market. Must be a major concern for them. Christian Keller, fantastic to get your thoughts on this programme. Barclays Head of Economics Research. I hope you're doing well, sir. On Full Faith and Credit with TD Securities, Priya Misra joins us. Priya, just simply, what are you going to listen for from Chairman Powell in one hour? Hi, Tom. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, I think we, I'll be watching for what what next. So, you know, what we heard from Chair Powell in, in, in the uh, last Fed meeting was considerable risk in the medium term. So is, that's a bit of a departure from what he said earlier, which was, you know, things are going to rebound in the second half. I think the Fed, rightfully so, is addressing that there is some structural damage right. being done here. But they haven't talked about what next. So I think to, to, to tell us, you know, more forward guidance, perhaps yield curve control, we're looking for the Fed to undertake yield yeah. curve control by the end of the year. I think there's a lot of talk around negative yield rates. I wish he can actually sort of squash that because negative rates is going to create far more problems than anything it can actually solve. Right. So the market's been pricing in negative rates. I think he needs to say no negative rates or, or it's not an effective tool. But here's what we can do. I think we need a little bit of what next from the Fed. Okay, fine. I want to go off a bozy on you right now. In the interior movement of the yield market right now, Priya, what's the attribute of the Fabozzi analysis of the yield curve that matters right now? <laughs> that's that's great. Um, so I think there's a lot of the, the front end is all about Fed pricing. So that ends up being more economics. When you talk about Fabozzi, you're talking about term premium, which is the supply demand that we're, we're dealing with, that tug of war in the long end is all about the U.S. Treasury that's issuing a ton of long-end paper, and essentially the only buyer in town is the Fed. And but, but the Fed buying has been flexible. We don't know how long they're going to buy, what pace, what's the total amount. So that's why the market, every auction ends up being a liquidity event because we have to wait to see 
will the demand show up? Will the Fed buy enough? So there's a sort of separate issue in the long end that I don't think the Fed is going to give up flexibility. I think we're just going to have to trade auctions with the hope that the Fed is there as a backstop. But the front end is much more anchored by the economy, by, you know, when, 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 the Fed hike and the market's not pricing in hikes until 2024. So that's going to put a ceiling on all yields. But I'd say that ceiling is just a lot softer in the long end because of the supply demand issue. Well, let's talk about the front end just a little bit more, shall we? In 55 minutes time, look, I imagine he's going to be asked the question about negative interest rates. Do you expect, as many people expect him to, Priya, just to bat that one away? Yes, I think he's going to talk about, um, you know, I hope he's more specific rather than just saying no, because as we've all lived through it, many unthinkables became possible in over the last two months. So I think just saying no, that's not enough. I think that that will not really squash all the speculation. I think if he addresses that money market funds, this $5 trillion of in government money market funds, they break the buck with negative rates. This is something very peculiar to the U.S. financial money market. It doesn't exist in Europe and Japan. So just taking what Europe and Japan have done and saying that can work here, I think doesn't work. So if he addresses that there are plumbing issues in the money market or there's a problem with financial intermediation, if you take rates negative, I think credit creation actually goes away. So I think if he's more specific about the problems with money with uh, negative rates and instead says, look, we've got 13.3 facilities, we've got yield curve control, we've got other tools, we've got a balance sheet we can grow. And I think forcefully saying that they can grow the balance sheet with a, to an unlimited amount, I think that will uh, comfort the market that we're not going to negative rates but they have other things that they can help out with, particularly as fiscal, the, the, the fiscal easing, there doesn't seem to be a plan or, or at least there doesn't seem to be much consensus on what this phase four of the fiscal easing will look like. Priya, you raised such an important point, which is basically that Fed official after Fed official has come out this week and in prior weeks and said, we're not taking rates negative. And the market says, you still may. Actually, we're going to price that in. I want to home in, home in though, on the idea of the balance sheet and sort of this unlimited capacity. Right now, $6.7 trillion is the total size, up $2 trillion from just two months ago. How high could that go without triggering a political debate in Washington? Right. I think it's more the the political issue. So in Japan, that uh, the BOJ uh, balance sheet as a share of GDP is much, much higher. So technically, there is no level. But I think it starts becoming a political issue, which is why I think if the Fed can strengthen forward guidance through yield curve control or through average inflation targeting or go back to the Evans rule, you know, we're not going to hike until the unemployment rate is at 5% or inflation is above 2 they actually lower the amount they have to buy in the front end. So then they can, they would have to still keep buying. So I expect the balance sheet to get to $12 trillion by the time, at least, you know, with, with the current 12. supply dynamic. Wait, by when? Oh, right. By um, when? By, by the end of next year. Right. Wow. So, <laughs> well, so we, but, you know, but there's no limit to how much it can grow. But I think they'll want to prevent buying more. And for that, just set the front end, like anchor it solidly with, with forward guidance. And then, but they still have to buy a lot in the long end. I don't think they want to go into yield curve control for the tenure. The, uh, the BOJ did do that because they didn't want to buy more. But I think, you know, 10-year Treasury is a very different environment. I, I don't think the Fed goes that far. Okay. But yeah, I think they'll have to do more 13-3 and more bond buying. So the balance sheet $12 trillion. Is this going to be the same type of composition that we've already been seeing, or are they going to expand out into other kinds of assets? 
you know, if they, if risk assets are where they are now, which I have struggled with how quickly we've rallied. So I guess in my makeup, there is going to be another re- day of reckoning where the risk ma- complex understands that there is no great reopening. The, the new normal looks very different from what we lived in in January. Yeah, then I think they'll have to do more 13-3 facilities. But if risk assets are here, credit is here, I think then the balance sheet will look much more treasuries than it will right. risk assets. But I think it's going to depend on how risk assets behave. This public service announcement, folks, brought to you by Bloomberg Surveillance, John Farrell, Lisa Bramowitz, and Tom Keen. And now Priya Miser will explain to our global audience, what is yield curve control? Lisa, what? Uh, Priya, Priya. Priya. Lisa Priya. Priya, what is yield curve enough. control? I'll just tell you, it's a nightmare for a rate strategist. So you can just imagine how difficult it is for me to even suggest that. What is it? But it it is the Fed. It is a central bank that is credible. And why are they credible? Because they have an unlimited balance sheet. It's a central bank saying, we will not let rates and a certain part of the curve go above a level, or we'll target a certain level. I think they picked the three-year. So the Fed will not be the first one to do it. RBA is targeting the three-year point. The BOJ is targeting the 10-year point. So it's almost when you're sort of out of bullets, well, here's a new creative tool. We just tell you rates are not going above a level. So then forget data dependence. We got to go, but come on, Priya, you're out of bullets and you can see the whites of their eyes. They're attacking. I mean, I I just, come on. Can you really upset Tom, Priya, and just tell Tom what the BRJ targets on the 10-year maturity? (laughs) It's like, what is it? It's It's zero, Tom. It's zero. It's zero. Folks, none of this is in Abel Bernanke. None of this is in Mancu. None of this. Come on, Priya. That is true. Well, we're living in historic times, so they have to become more creative. And actually, Brainerd, uh, Fed Governor Brainerd has talked about this as being a useful tool. Priya, we've got to leave it there. Priya Misra of TD. He is an admiral. He is out at sea. Of course, that magisterial story of his first time coming out of San Diego into the Pacific Ocean. I believe that was in Sea Power. The new book, Sailing True North, stories of admirals. No admiral. I can't imagine Rickover in a pandemic housebound as Stravitas has been over the last few days. Admiral Stravitas, you're out on Instagram with painful photos, I painful photos, I say, of, of being housebound. How's it going at home? It's going fine. Um, you know what admirals do when there's a lockdown is we practice our admiral skills by playing the game Battleship, Tom. And that's gone very, very well. I've won, uh, I've won a whole series of those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I guess like all of us, I'm doing about 80% yeah. of normal, uh, just doing it on the phone and, and video and so forth. It's fine. Right. Uh, Admiral, an important question. This nation has soldiers uh, uh, in duty, sailors at sea right now, and we hear the stories of the illnesses on board these ships. You've been on those ships during other illnesses. How do you as a command officer on one of these ships contain a virus? Yeah, let's get it in perspective. So think about your kitchen. Let's say you live in the suburbs. You have a a modest but uh, okay kitchen. Now picture your kitchen with 15 people living in it. That's what a birthing compartment on a Navy warship looks like. So, Tom, you're not going to social distance. So what you've got to do is test constantly. If you have the coronavirus test kits, great. If not, you're going with temperature and symptoms. 
soon as you see somebody, you isolate them. You probably have a birthing compartment where you keep all the people who are suspected. You test them. You get them off the ship. That's the only thing you can do. Social distancing won't work. Admiral, I'm wondering what the world is going to look like after the pandemic is over. I'm not the only one. I've heard Richard Haas and Ian Bremmer talking about how the distraction of the pandemic is allowing some sort of rogue nations to accelerate programs already in effect. How destabilizing do you think that type of activity will be? Is it something you're watching? It is indeed. And I, I talked to both Richard and Ian quite a bit. We're good friends and are fairly aligned in our views. Um, China is going to take advantage of this moment. They're coming out of the turn faster than the United States. They'll use it to uh, implement the one belt, one road geoeconomic strategy that they were already pursuing. They'll put more pressure on Hong Kong, more pressure on Taiwan more aggressive activity in the South China Sea. The other two to watch are the usual bad boys. It's uh, North Korea with Kim. Uh, Unfortunately, the rumors of his death were greatly exaggerated. As Mark Twain said, he's back on station. He'll continue to be difficult. And of course, Iran, despite having a terrible coronavirus outbreak themselves, we see them harassing our ships in the Gulf. So look for them to take advantage of distraction. And here's their hope, and I'll conclude with this. They want to push the United States toward departing the international scene, toward isolationism, toward coming home. That would be a terrible mistake for us. Do you think that the signs are that that is the path that the United States is going, or do you get the sense that the U.S. and Europe in particular are coming closer together as they join forces to try to fight the pandemic? I think all bets are off until we get through the election, Lisa. So for the next six months, we're going to be very absorbed internally as that unfolds. After the election, I am hopeful that we will avoid the dire history of the 1920s and 30s when we had a pandemic, Spanish influenza. We had the rise of fascism. We ended up in the Second World War following the Great Depression. We ought to be able to learn from those lessons that we can't simply retreat back here to Fortress America. We need to mm-hmm. stay engaged in the world. Admiral, one final question. And with all that's going on with China and the United States, we forget that there is an island, there is Taiwan, and even more yes. importantly, off of Taiwan, there are other islands as well. Dongsha Islands. And, you know, they maybe they're not on the map. Maybe they're artificial. There's a whole battle here. But there's real reports that the Chinese may advance toward these littler islands. What do we do? Show the flag? Indeed. Um, I think at that point, our best bet is to uh, continue our show the flag U.S. Navy. We call these freedom of navigation patrols. But, Tom, the real lever is closer military cooperation with Taiwan. That is what China wants to avoid. We can we can use that as a lever to push China back. The little islands, Kinoi, yeah. Matsu, and others um, are indeed targets of China. This is going to be a flashpoint going forward. Very good, Admiral. Thank you so much. There's a series of books out by Admiral Stavitas, folks, and I'm going to be as clear as I can. Start with the Leader's Bookshelf. In it are 45, 50 books or so, and you'll find some jewels in there to help you get through this pandemic. Admiral, thank you uh, so much. Leadership is always interesting, and it's particularly interesting 
during a pandemic. It is most, most important now to get the messages, the experiences that people are facing during this pandemic. David Rubenstein has been doing this. He does it with Adina Friedman of the NASDAQ. A good conversation about what Adina Friedman is doing now. Let's listen. Do you think you really need to bring your, all your people back into the offices because it seems to be working pretty well right now? Or do you think that a lot of people may not want to come back into the offices because they're afraid of traveling to the offices or they're just comfortable working at home? And it's a great point, David, because we, we did a survey of every employee to ask them what is their comfort level to come back under certain conditions and based on the status of different cities where we operate. And we have, we have some employees who are eager to come back, but the the vast majority of the employees want to continue to wait and see um, how things progress in the cities where they operate before they come back. We have the luxury of patience. Uh, we have the ability to work from home very effectively. So we will volunteer, ask people if they want to come back voluntarily and they feel they can do it in a safe way, then we would like to start to reopen offices to give them that flexibility. But we then will put a whole lot of protocols in place inside the offices to make sure that they stay safe while they're there. Adina Friedman of the NASDAQ, Paul Sweeney and Tom Keene with David Rubenstein as he drives forward the conversation with his wonderful series uh, on uh, Leadership uh, Live. David, the fabric of this city, how is it going to change? You are a great student of this. You have been involved in commercial real estate transactions. You've been involved in the distinction between goods transactions, essential goods, foods, and medical performing services. And also, as Ms. Friedman speaks of, the service sector. How will the service sector change? It's clear over the course of history that humans' greatest desire is to live and then to reproduce, and to have their children live and be healthy. And I think people are not going to take chances going back to work so quickly if they think their lives or maybe their children's lives will be at stake. So I think people are going to come back to work much more slowly, and people have learned they can work from home just as well, maybe in some cases better. So I think you'll get a reversion to the mean over several years, but not right away. So, David, as you were discussing with Adina Friedman, again, the CEO of NASDAQ, you know, we've seen a tremendous amount of volatility in the financial markets. David, how has Adina said uh, that the NASDAQ has dealt with this, again, given that much of their workforce is uh, kind of working from home? Well, they are a high-tech company, and as you know, they're an electronic uh, exchange, so they never really needed people on the floors to run around and exchange uh, trading orders. So they're, they're pretty well equipped to do this. I would also say that their their company has done well. In fact, their their stock is up because there's a lot of trading going on. Markets may be up and down, but they make money whether the markets go up or down. But actually, <clears throat> NASDAQ has the five biggest tech companies in the world, or at least certainly in the United States, on their exchange. Mm. And therefore, yeah. those companies are doing quite well. Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Apple, and so forth. David, you go down that river in Pittsburgh where the rivers meet, and there is Alcoa. And Paul O'Neill, I'm going to give him huge credit for the modern service sector floor, the cubicles, the spread out, the spread out thing. Carlisle lives this. You guys have done this so many times, so many transactions where you have to deal with labor space, labor dynamics. Are the days of the cubicle done? Are the days of packing people in? You know, you've got a a, a synergistic guy going, right. we need to make feet 3.2 inches apart. 
Is that right. just gone? Well, there are two phenomena that are going to go forward. One is that there will be cubicles, but they will have more protection so that people oh, can't be wow. breathing on other people so readily. And secondly, fewer people will be living and working in the cubicles because fewer people are going to come back to their offices. Many people are going to be content to work at home or remotely. So you'll have fewer people, in my view, and those okay, people that do work in cubicles <clears throat> will be better protected. The, you, Yahoo. I mean, I remember one day a CEO at Yahoo walked in and said this working at home stuff isn't working for productivity. She had the courage to change it around. What is your experience, David Rubenstein, of people working at home? Is it efficacious? It is efficient if you um, don't have a lot of young children running around <laughs> that you have to take care of. If you've got young children running around and you don't have a lot of help, it can be difficult. If you're my age and your children are out of the house, it's not that difficult. So that's a big difference. So, David, it's interesting here. I think, you know, a lot of companies are trying to figure this out here. Um, you know, a lot of companies, I think they're probably learning that their, uh, you know, efficiency, their productivity uh, is probably better than maybe they initially thought of when they thought about yes. working from home. I mean, how do you think that's going to play out? I think companies are surprised. When I ask CEOs on the show, uh, Leadership Live, what they are most surprised about, it is that their companies have worked quite well remotely. What I think is going to happen is you'll see more people doing it remotely when, the, when, the, when, the, when their colleagues are going back to work. More people will stay at home than they would have otherwise thought. And secondly, I don't think everybody will be brought back to work. In other words, I'm not sure 100% of all employees uh, are going to be rehired. Or, or kept, just mm. because I think people will realize that sales will be slower for a while, and I think profitability will be lower for a while, and I don't think everybody will come back to work in the same job they had before this crisis. David, thank you so much. An important conversation with Adina Friedman, NASDAQ CEO. Uh, look for that Friday. This will be 9.30 p.m. on Bloomberg Television. David Rubenstein, Leadership uh, Live. At this time of day, we've been talking with members of the Johns Hopkins University uh, about this pandemic. Lawrence Sauer has been kind enough to join us repeatedly, always giving good perspective. Lauren, I want you to talk about Dr. Fauci, the virologist, speaking with the ophthalmologist Rand Paul yesterday of Kentucky. What did you take away from the two doctors, doctors of different fields, going at it over infectious disease? I think Dr. Fauci is, um, as he's demonstrated repeatedly, a steadfast expert. And so, I, you know, as an infectious disease physician, I think we have to trust that his, his path forward and his vision for how we can safely reopen the, company, uh, reopen the country is the, is the most important path to follow. We have to be safe, we have to be steadfast, and we have to be, um, this is the time when we need that voice of leadership. Where, Lauren, good morning from London, where can you find a voice of leadership? Is there anyone and, and anything when you look at testing, when you look at, you know, some of the things that we know about what this actually virus does that, that you would trust? Yeah, I think that's one of our, our biggest challenges, you know, in that discussion with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Paul and, and when Dr. Fauci called him cavalier for arguing that schools should be reopened. I think we saw that leadership gap. Um, unfortunately, I don't feel like we have a strong national leadership front 
um, that we can go to for support. Normally you would expect that from the CDC, and um, the CDC has been sidelined here. Uh, I think Dr. Fauci is our best bet for who we can follow and how we can safely, you know, how we can take advice safely. But, but that conversation yesterday just demonstrated that, that we really still have that need. Thank you so much. Too short of time. Lauren Sauer there. Johns Hopkins University Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.